Well, good morning. Um, if you don't know me, I am Alan Holtberg. I'm an elder at the uh, at this church and a uh, professor of New Testament at at Biola University. Um, I'm gonna have to apologize right up front. I'm kind of hopped up on on uh, throat lozenges. My, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make it all the way through this uh, sermon without coughing or uh, sneezing or something, but uh, I, I apologize uh, in advance. Well, let's see. Can I have the um, screen in the back with, uh, there you go. All right. On a cold Friday afternoon, January 20th, 1961, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was sworn in as the 35th President of the United States. Immediately after taking his oath of office, Kennedy turned to address the crowd. And his speech is considered, alongside President Lincoln's second inaugural address, as one of the greatest orations given by an American president. It spoke to the hopes and aspirations of a vibrant, uh, powerful nation, one with incredible opportunities in front of it and with incredible uh, challenges ahead of it. And his speech is especially famous for one line spoken toward the very end of his address. I'm sure you are familiar with it. Let's hear that. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thanks. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Inspiring words. And uh, it started an inspiring uh, generation in uh, the Apollo program and the Peace Corps and, and other sorts of things like that. Well, today we're starting a series in the Gospel of Mark. And my job this morning is to give you a, an introduction to the book, to, to provide you with some orientation before we jump into the individual stories in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to take you through the whole book of Mark today. And I'm going to show you its primary message. And we're going to see this morning that Mark's primary message is a lot like President Kennedy's inaugural address. In fact, Kennedy's famous quote is one that, with some tweaking, Mark could have appended to, to his gospel. Now, I'm going to be taking you through... Uh, a number of passages. So you're going to want to have your Bible ready and you're going to want to uh, strap your seatbelts on. And uh, when you're ready, we'll get started. 
Well, there it disappeared on me again, but that's okay. Before we get into the book proper, uh, let me just give you some background to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is probably the earliest of the four canonical Gospels. That is, Mark was probably written before Matthew or Luke or John. Uh, Probably within 25 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the things that Mark uh, writes about in his gospel were things that were still fresh in people's minds uh, by the time he, he writes his story. And not only was Mark written early, it was written by someone who had long associated with the movers and shakers of the early church. We read in Acts that... Uh, the apostolic church in Jerusalem sometimes met in the house of Mark's mother. Now, imagine that, right? How would you like it if the pastoral staff of your church was the 12 apostles of Jesus? Okay, that's an amazing church to grow up in. Mark grew up hearing the apostles tell firsthand about the life and teaching of Jesus. And beyond that, Mark was also the cousin of Barnabas, another uh, uh, important person in the church in Jerusalem. And he was a ministry partner with Barnabas and uh, with Paul and with Peter. And this lends uh, a special air of credibility to Mark's gospel. Mark was in a unique position uh, to write an accurate account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And then we have this testimony from uh, a leader of the church right after the apostolic period, a guy named Clement of Alexandria. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Let's see if this keeps going. There we go. Notice what it says here. When at Rome, Peter had openly preached the word and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, the large audience urged Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered what had been spoken, to write it all down. And this he did, making his gospel available to all who wanted it. So according to this uh, early leader of the church, the gospel of Mark... Um, the Gospel of Mark was written for or at the behest of uh, the Roman church, and it was a compendium of the teaching of Peter. So you got to imagine this. Peter, when he's preaching or teaching, he doesn't tell a whole biography of Jesus. He doesn't start at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and tell everything that happened all the way to the end of Jesus' ministry, to his death and resurrection. Rather, Peter just tells individual stories about Jesus, about his experience with Jesus as they fit whatever it is he's, he's talking about. And it was then Mark who took those individual stories and uh, laid them out in what we might call a biography of Jesus. He gave the narrative framework for all these stories of Jesus. Again, notice it says, 
uh, that, that Clement said, um, the Gospel of Mark was written for the Roman church or at the request of the Roman church. And that's something that we're going to think about again before the end of our time today. Now, the basic structure of Mark's gospel is pretty straightforward. The gospel is almost evenly divided into two halves. The first half focuses on the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee and in the surrounding regions of Galilee. And the second half focuses on Jesus's final week in Jerusalem, culminating in his crucifixion. And the middle section of the book, I've put it under that that number two, passion ministry, but the middle section, chapters eight, nine, and 10, form a transition from the first half of the book to the second half of the book. As Jesus travels from Galilee to Jerusalem uh, in order to be crucified. And in these three chapters, chapters eight, nine, and 10, Jesus tells his disciples three times that the plan is to go to Jerusalem to die. And that's going to be important for us uh, in understanding the purpose of Mark's gospel. Now, Mark's narrative, that is the story that he tells about Jesus, is driven along by the question, who is Jesus? In other words, uh, the story proceeds with Jesus knowing exactly who he is and what his mission is. But everyone else, all the other characters that encounter Jesus are um, flabbergasted by him. They can't quite figure out uh, who he is. So take a look at these quotes. Uh, In chapter two, the Pharisees, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees ask, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or his disciples after Jesus stills the storm. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 6, Jesus is in his hometown uh, preaching. And his uh, relatives and neighbors, they say, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hand? In chapter 11, Jesus uh, has, has cleansed the temple. And the temple authorities say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave this authority to do them? Uh, during his trial, the chief priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So notice that As this story proceeds, the characters are constantly asking the question, who is this guy? Okay. Um, Now, what's interesting about this is that Mark lets the reader know who Jesus is from the very beginning of the gospel. Turn to to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and let's take a look at what it says. And excuse me. (coughs) All right. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice that? Mark tells the reader right up front that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the Son of God. 
okay? And in particular, Mark is going to uh, let the reader know what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God, okay? Now, this, of course, wouldn't have been uh, news to the Christian audience that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, right? They, they signed up for Jesus because they already believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. That's how they came to be Christians. But as the story of this gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that Mark suspects uh, that his readers may have an improper understanding of, of this idea, okay? That they may have notions about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God uh, that need nuancing, okay? Um, and so uh, a major purpose of this gospel, it's not the only purpose, but a primary purpose of this gospel um, will be to reorient the reader or the reader's idea about what it means for Jesus to be the messianic son of God. And Mark is going to do this in his portrayal of Jesus' interactions with his disciples within the story. Okay, so as the story moves along, Jesus is going to be reorienting his disciples' understanding about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, and Mark intends the reader to, to follow along with that reorientation. Okay? Now, this reorientation uh, begins in the very first scene of Mark's gospel, that is, the baptism of Jesus. Look again at Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Okay, now in this, uh, oh boy, that's, can you see that very well? I guess so. I can't see it very well from where I'm at, but that's all right. You know, I just found out, so my eyes are dying. I found out recently my ears are dying. Um, my voice is dying. I'm not in good shape up here, but uh, praise God, his power is made perfect in, in weakness, right? Um, all right, so notice I have highlighted some words uh, in the voice from heaven and, and the surrounding uh, context. And notice what God says to Jesus. You are my son, the beloved. Okay? So Mark, at the very beginning, has told the reader this is going to be a story, this is going to be good news about the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the very first story of the narrative, God makes the confession, you are my son. And this language, you are my son, comes out of the Old Testament. The voice from heaven is alluding to an Old Testament passage. And does anybody have an idea of what Old Testament passage this voice is alluding to? I know, I know a few people who have an idea about that, but they're not going to... I'm not going to ask them to raise their hand and tell me anything. Okay? This is an allusion 
to Psalm, <coughs> excuse me, Psalm 2, uh, a psalm about God's world-dominating king. Okay, a, a psalm about the king, the Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God, who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Turn, turn over to Psalm 2 for a second. It's a short psalm. I'm going to read, read the whole thing. Notice what it says. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters uh, apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then the Messiah speaks, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So notice the power in this psalm. This is a psalm about the powerful, terrifying, world-dominating Messiah. Someone you don't want to mess with, right? This is God's ultimate king who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Jesus, as the powerful son of God, is going to be a major theme in the gospel of Mark. Okay? Um, starting from this point on, and especially in the first half of the book, during Jesus' public ministry, uh, Mark is going to portray Jesus as having extraordinary supernatural power. Everyone who encounters Jesus will be amazed, uh, astounded at his miracles and his exorcism and uh, his authority. Jesus has supernatural power over disease and over nature and over demons. <laughs> he has the ability to know what people are thinking. Uh, his teaching assumes uh, his authority to break the Sabbath and to revise the laws of Israel. So Jesus is definitely portrayed as supernaturally powerful in Mark's gospel. Now, remember that we saw that Mark's original readers were probably Romans and mostly Gentile. Most of them had, had come from a pagan background. Okay? And for pagans in the Roman world, a sense of powerlessness 
was the, the, the chief religious problem that needed to be overcome. People felt that their lives were under the control of forces uh, external to themselves. They were just cogs in the machine, controlled by fate or manipulated by arbitrary spiritual forces. And so people in Mark's world worshipped gods, they worshipped goddesses, who could give them some kind of control over their lives. They wanted a god or a goddess who could use their power uh, to stave off these, these external influences. So this portrait of Jesus as the supernaturally powerful son of God is one that had uh, incredible sales appeal in Mark's world. But there was also an embarrassing reality about the life of Jesus that didn't jibe with this portrait of Jesus as the powerful son of God. Any idea what that is? I think you might know. Jesus had been crucified. Okay? Now, you have to understand the depth of this incongruity. Jesus, the powerful son of God, was crucified. In Mark's world, uh, people were obsessed with honor and power. Uh, In Mark's world, honor and power meant everything. And shame and weakness were to be avoided at all costs. And of all shameful things, crucifixion ranked at the top. Crucifixion was the most contemptible way to die in the first century Roman world. You were hung naked in a public place. Uh, You died a slow, agonizing, brutal death. And all of this was an advertisement to everybody else about Roman imperial might. And so the question of anyone in Mark's world, when they first heard the story of Jesus, uh, would be, how could Jesus be the powerful son of God if he died on a cross? Those two things don't go together. Or if they were Jewish, how could Jesus be the Messiah? How could Jesus, uh, instead of defeating the Romans, instead of Uh, rescuing God's people from pagan domination, uh, how could Jesus have been crucified by the Romans? Remember Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember what he says after that? A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Okay? So, It would be easy for Mark's original audience, Mark's original readers, to want Jesus for his power and to reject or at least uh, seriously play down the cross. At best, the cross uh, might be a hiccup in the story that was quickly overshadowed by the resurrection. But Mark wants to let his readers know 
that if you want Jesus, the powerful son of God, you have to embrace his crucifixion. Okay? So, again, excuse me a second. (coughs) Notice that uh, after presenting stories about Jesus' supernatural power in the first half of the book, the second half of the book focuses on the death of Jesus. Okay, so again, it's, it's almost um, perfectly divided in half. Um, and as I said, in the middle section, chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10, there we go. Oh, don't do it again. Um, this shift of focus begins to take place. Uh, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Okay? And they have to get, get that in their heads. So turn to Mark chapter 8 for a second. And let me read uh, this passage starting in verse 27. This is the first time that Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die in Jerusalem. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Notice that question. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You're the Psalm 2 Messiah. You're the powerful son of God. You are the one who's going to go to Jerusalem and establish God's kingdom and and kick out the Romans and make... Uh, uh, you know, make uh, the, the, the empire of Israel. And that's why we signed up with you. Verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. By the way, this is another motif in Mark's gospel. Jesus won't allow people to let, make it known that he's the Christ. And he began to teach them that the son of, God, a son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No way, Lord. That is, that is not on the agenda. You're going to go to Jerusalem and take over. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. And what does Jesus uh, do? Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Okay? So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And by this, he means you are the powerful Psalm 2 Messiah. But Jesus says that Peter is focused on man's interests, not on God's interests. He's focused on power and how that power will benefit him. And so he tells Peter, get out of my way. Interesting passage. Well, take a look at the very next story, story of the transfiguration, dropping to chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they had become terrified. So notice this. Peter, you're standing in my way. Okay? When you want to glom on to, to me and dictate to me the agenda for the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, you're focusing on man's interests and not on, on God's interests. But I'll tell you what, Peter, let me just reassure you. He takes him up on a mountain, right? And he goes, <laughs> right? Wow! I knew it! Jesus is the powerful Son of God. Okay? And then look what happens. Uh, starting in, excuse me, uh, starting in verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. What does that sound like? What scene does that sound like that we've already seen in the gospel? That's the baptism scene. Okay? This is my beloved son. What's it say? Listen to him. Got that? So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and he is. He is the powerful son of God. He is the supernaturally uh, 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 powerful ruler of the nations. But God says that means you need to put aside your agenda and listen to him. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that being the Christ, the Son of God, means that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples need to get rid of their notions about what it means for Jesus to be God's Son and instead get on board with his agenda. They need to listen to him. So now take a look at the crucifixion scene in Mark 15. Turn over to Mark chapter 15. <laughs> Lord, may my voice make it here. And I'm going to start reading uh, verse, starting at verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and it divided their gar his garments up among themselves. Uh, verse uh, 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Notice that? You cannot be the Messiah, the powerful son of God, if you are up there on a cross. Uh, keep on going in verse uh, 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Got that? Um, And those who were crucified with him were insulting him also. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge, uh, gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then look at verse 39. When the centurion, the one who crucified him, was who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. See that? Everybody else says, you can't be the son of God. You can't be the powerful Psalm 2 Messiah if you die on the cross. And the very first person, the only person uh, besides God and the demons who know that Jesus is the Son of God, but the first human character in the whole book of Mark, not even his disciples, not even Peter, when he confessed Jesus is the Christ, said, you are the Son of God. The very first person who confessed that Jesus was the Son of God was the centurion when he saw Jesus die on a cross. Okay? Um, Mark is, uh oh, <laughs> I got to catch up with myself. Mark is making a powerful statement to his audience. The only proper confession of Jesus as the powerful Son of God is one that embraces the cross. Or uh, to put it a little bit differently, the place where the powerful Son of God uh, most fully reveals. His power is in his crucifixion. Now, Mark is going to go one step further. He's going to let the reader know uh, that the reason you can't have Jesus, the powerful son of God, without embracing the cross, (coughs) excuse me, is because of what the cross accomplishes. And this brings us back to the baptism of Jesus, and a second allusion uh, in the voice from heaven, a second allusion to an Old Testament passage and an Old Testament figure who's very different from the powerful Psalm 2 Messiah. So here's uh, our words again. And notice, besides you are my son, I have these other words highlighted. Okay. Um, Oh, thank you. I actually have uh, some like hot tea, something that my wife made for me. I didn't want to bring it up because I felt it was kind of sacrilegious to put it on the (laughs) communion table, but um, I'll put it down here for right now. Thanks, Derek. Um, He says, uh, this is, or you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is an allusion to another passage in the Old Testament to Isaiah 42, 1. Isaiah 42, 1 says, 
Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Um, This uh, personage, God's servant, is someone that uh, is talked about in a series of poems in the book of Isaiah. We usually refer to this guy as the suffering servant. Anybody know why we refer to him as the suffering servant? Or what passage uh, that refers to? That refers to Isaiah, the the final servant song, the final poem about the servant, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Um, This is a passage that's, I'm sure, familiar to many of you. Um, Turn over to, uh, just turn to Isaiah 53. I'll start reading in verse 1. This is the final poem about God's servant. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faith, face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Okay, I'll stop there. Excuse me a second. (coughs) So the servant is called the suffering servant because he suffers on behalf of Israel and all of us to bear the penalty of our sins. And the voice from heaven in the first scene of Mark's gospel identifies Jesus as the Psalm 2 Messiah, the powerful Son of God, who will die as an atonement for sins. This is why the cross is the most powerful act of the powerful Son of God. This is why Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to die. The voice from heaven starts to reorient the reader from a commitment to Jesus because of his power to a commitment to Jesus because of his seeming weakness. And Mark makes this clear in one final passage that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, The third time that Jesus announces he's going to die in Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to read starting in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, 
and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Okay, so, guys, this is the plan. Notice how the disciples react, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want uh, you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a nice thing to, you know, approach God in your prayers, right? Hey, hey, I want you to do anything I ask of you, okay, God? That's what they say to Jesus. And he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Notice that? I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Yeah, whatever, Jesus I don't even understand that, but hey, when you sit in your glory, we want the most glorious positions besides you. Okay, it goes right over their head. Um, And then uh, look at uh, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Notice that baptism scene comes back to the fore here. They said to him, sure we can. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. By the way, we just read a passage where we first time we read about somebody on Jesus's right and on his left. Where was that? At the cross. At the cross. Notice how Mark ties these baptism, this uh, uh, passage here, the cross, together again. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Doggone it, those guys. They're, they're honing in on the territory I wanted. I wanted to have the best place in the kingdom with Jesus. Okay. They don't understand. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Now look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. The Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7. This is the most, this is the king of the kingdom of God. This is the guy uh, who has uh, the service of the nations and the worship of the nations. Even the son of man, the most important person in the kingdom, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, by the way, give his life a ransom for many. I don't know if you recognize that, but that's suffering servant language. Okay? Jesus is going to die as an atonement for our sins. Um. So Mark's message is this. The most powerful act of the powerful Son of God 
was to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life on the cross. And notice the second part of that idea. Since this is the case, disciples of Jesus also must lose their lives. Notice that? They need to give up their ambitions to power or status or comfort or safety or whatever other reason they may have signed up to G- with Jesus for what benefit they could get from it. They need to stop making everything about them. They need to take up their crosses, Jesus says in chapter 8, and follow Jesus in service to the kingdom. Now, this idea was captured uh, poignantly by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He was a famous German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this brings it things home to, to us. We don't need to be convinced that the cross of Christ is essential to our faith. We already believe that it was on the cross that Jesus died for our sins. So the Christology of Mark, his portrait of Jesus, isn't that hard for us to swallow. It's the response of discipleship that's the hard pill to swallow. Have we been crucified, excuse me, crucified with Christ, as Paul puts it in Galatians? Did you, did I die when we signed up with Jesus? And I guess probably more importantly, do we die daily when we're confronted again with the choice to center the world around ourselves and our goals and our ambitions and our comfort and whatever else. Mark says that the way of discipleship is the way of the cross. And I pray that this week we would all, by the power of his spirit, learn to walk in that way. Amen.